Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined again by Andrew Lipinski and Brian Phillips. How are you guys today? Doing great. Glad to be here. Doing well. Good to be back. Awesome. So we joked a little bit at the end of last week's episode uh, that we did not have enough time to talk about all there is to talk about Agamemnon. And then upon reading Libation Bearers, we realized, oh, we really, really do need to go back and cover a few things in <laughs> toward the end of Agamemnon. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to Brian, uh, who's got the most familiarity with these plays to kind of bring us up to speed a little bit on the things we missed last week. Well, I noticed that one of the things that we didn't cover was what happens uh, really. Okay, we didn't even get halfway through the play, to be honest. Uh, but Agamemnon <laughs> lives happily ever after, to a ripe old age, um, enjoying life with the grandkids. And you know. um, so, <laughs> one thing that we do that we did want to point out is that uh, there's more foreshadowing when Agamemnon returns back home and he first meets Clytemnestra. Now, if you um, if you're teaching these books, uh, whether in a, a school setting or homeschooling. Um, and you're teaching uh, the the old Greek stories. Um, you really can't pass up the opportunity to compare the the meetings here between Agamemnon and Clytemnestra with um, Odysseus and Penelope. Uh, but we won't take time to do that right now. I don't. I don't think. At least I won't right now. Um, and so one of the things that I do want to point out in that in that conversation though is when Agamemnon first meets Clytemnestra. She's kind of giving him an update on what's going on. And she says, um, this is around line 860, 64, 65. Um, and so our child is gone, not standing by our side. The bond of our dearest pledge, pledges, mine and yours. By all rights, our child should be here. And notice that there's an ellipsis there. There's a pause. She says, by all rights, our child should be here. And then after that pause says, Orestes, you seem startled. You needn't be. Our loyal brother in arms will take good care of him. Stropios, the Phocian, um, he warned from the start, we court two griefs in one. You risk all on the wars. And what if the people rise up howling for the king and anarchy should dash our plans? Men, it is their nature, trampling on the fighter once he's down. Our child is gone. That is my self-defense, and it is true. So um, what she's basically saying is that uh, Orestes has been sent away to stay with um, with a family friend, and it was because often when the king was away, those who wanted to usurp the throne would take the opportunity in, in his absence and take over. Now, of course, what she doesn't tell us here is that uh, when she says, by all rights, our child should be here, uh, she's probably referencing uh, Iphigenia uh, more than Orestes, but then um, at the same time, is explaining his absence. She also does. She uses that uh, that reasoning that he was sent away for his own protection and for the protection of Agamemnon's throne, um, which which of course would be true. But his throne has been usurped, as we will find out. Um, his his place is being taken over by someone else. So she's not really trying to protect his kingdom. Um, she's sort of using these half truths to. Um, to get him into the house. Um, now, jumping way ahead, this is after you know she after this conversation, she lays out the tapestries for him. She sort of goads him into walking across the uh, crimson red tapestries, even though he resists at first. She 
plays to his pride, which she knows full well. Um, she even says, you know, imagine if King Priam was coming home, you know, in his victory parade, what do you think he would do? Um, and so she sort of goads him into it. Um, and I'm fast forwarding really quickly because we don't want to run, run out of time on the second play. Um, once she gets him into the house and there's a lot that goes on here with Cassandra and leader, um, there's so all of the off scene stuff is being kind of narrated to us, uh, by the two of them. And, um, Clytemnestra kills Agamemnon, uh, in the shower, in the bathtub. So this is like the inspiration for psycho or something, I guess. <laughs> um, and, and it is interesting because then the, the yelling, it does kind of, it will, would come across almost like, re, 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 you know, um, I hear it. I hear it loud yeah, and clear. Yeah. Nothing and, new under the sun, Brian, nothing new under the sun. Right. Exactly. Spelled a little differently. So, so Aeschylus was obviously inspired by psycho. Um, yeah. <laughs> and he wrote that back into his play, but, um, after this, there's the, the confrontation that takes place between Clytemnestra and the chorus, the men of the city. And it's interesting that they condemn her, but they can't really bring themselves to say that Agamemnon was innocent either. And so they're kind of caught in this situation where the king is dead. Um, Aegisthus has taken the throne, which we will talk about that in just a second as well. And they don't know what to do about it because they can't really say Agamemnon didn't deserve it. <laughs> there's, there's, there's kind of this weird blend of they're sympathetic to Clytemnestra. Yes, she just murdered him, but they're still sympathetic to the situation. And yet they, they also recognize that um, what she did was, was wrong. It was unjust. You know, the king has been overthrown. Um, I guess this is revealed as, sort of the the man behind it that's been supporting Clytemnestra. And of course, that is very significant because as we talked about last week, Aegisthus was the son of Thyestes. So if, you, if you're not following that family line, you may have to go back and listen to the first episode again. But basically, uh, Thyestes was the one who pronounced the curse on the house of Atreus that the God that the gods would never let bloodshed, never let the sword depart from the house of Atreus. And now I guess this has used Agamemnon's absence to take take the throne from his cousin. And well, or from the house of Atreus more significantly. Yeah. And that's kind of that's where the first play ends was is with Agamemnon dead and I guess this and Clytemnestra having taken over and the chorus the you know elders of the town not knowing how to handle this right i think that's important yeah she she ends quite a nestra ends saying you know let them howl they're impotent you and mm -hmm. i have power now yeah and then yeah. fittingly we will set the house in order once for all yep those are some good custer last words right there i say what's the chorus's last words on yours brian Right before Clytemnestra that you just read. Let's see. Um, so the the chorus or the leader? The court. Well, I just have a chorus right before Clytemnestra. Oh, okay. I don't know. There's leader. Yeah. This, okay. uh, and that could just be a difference in stage direction. Yeah. But basically, leader is calling 
um, I guess this, um, a strutting rooster. Yeah. 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 <laughs> strut on your own dunghill. He said, <laughs> Oh, that's what yours says. Mine just says crow yeah. and strut brave cockerel by your hen. You have no threats to fear. So they're not going to go against him. Right. Yeah. At the very end, they, you know, they're wondering and they're going back and forth and, you know, she is pretty strong about it. And it's just her and the chorus for a time. And then it's the chorus and Aegisthus. And it ends. Yeah. And I think there is at one point, either the chorus or leader, uh, depending on the translation uh, yeah. or translator, um, does actually appeal to Orestes, you know, that if Orestes was here, we would know better what to do. Um, and then, of course, you know, who's the first person on scene in the second play? It's Orestes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, this um, for mine, it, it says, you know, it, at the chorus asks to bring Orestes home again. If the God's hands would guide and bring Orestes home again. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Brian. That was important information before we really get into the, the meat of libation bearers. And we, we got caught up in other things at the play last week. There's so much in there. So, yeah. Andrea, I think you're up this week for I'm our, for our sure. summary, our short narration of of the libation bearers gonna get us into it um i i don't know how to pronounce some of these words so orestes's companion his buddy who's come traveled with him how do you say his name i've always pronounced it pylades pylades okay Um, yeah so this play opens with orestes and pylades at the at his father's tomb. Um, and he asks Hermes his help. He sacrifices his hair. And then Electra, his sister, and women arrive. And uh, the chorus is highly involved um, in mourning at this time. And then um, Electra asks the chorus, how is she supposed to respond at her father's grave? What is this supposed to look like? And the chorus acknowledges that Agamemnon's grave or tomb is to be treated as an altar um, and that she can call on friends and the chorus says that the, her friends would be haters of Aegisthus, um, Orestes would be her friend and she loves that part and that the chorus tells her she can pray for someone to come and kill her father's killer and then she says well I now have the confidence to pray and so she asks Hermes to bring Orestes um, to light a flame within the house is the words my translator used. And um, then she's praying to her dad, her dead father, to return Orestes, uh, to give herself more confidence than her mom had, self-control, not confidence, wrong C, self-control than her mom had, and that her dad's killers would be killed. And the chorus then pours out the libations, which is partly the name of this whole play. And the chorus asks, Um, for a warrior to come and be ready to fight. And then um, Electra finds Orestes's hair on the ground and ponders and knows with certainty that it is her brother's hair. And then she tests the footprints and to see if that's her her brother. Did I say father? It's brother. And um, she asks the gods to help her with her emotions in the storm that she's in. And then Orestes comes out and he reveals himself to her Um, And she's not sure. And she buys in that it's him once he shows her both the lock and the cloth that she had woven. 
and she embraces him. They pray to Zeus for help. And then the chorus gets involved. Um, and in the scene, Orestes says something along the lines of that he wishes his dad had died in Troy. Because then his house would be one of honor. Um, and it would be a much lighter burden to bear than the burden he's bearing now with this dead father. Um, Electra says, nah, nah, nah. I wish, and in my version, it says that the two had died. And I think she means Helen and Paris. Like that those two had died and none of this had happened. But the chorus tells her that all of her allies are actually in Hades. And that she's actually on earth now with other usurpers and in her town. And Orestes prays to Zeus that the the debtors would be punished. Electra asks Zeus to, to split apart the skulls of those who harmed her family house. And um, the chorus then uh, pronounces the rule that, and how do you say this word? Um, I, I looked it up and now I'm not remembering how to pronounce it. Arrhenius? Arrhenius? How do you say that word? Aaron, E-R-I-N-Y-S? Um, I'm trying to see where you are. <laughs> I'm around, I'm in scene four, around the line 400. The chorus talks about the, that murder calls the Arenes, Arenes to retribute a murderer. I think that's one of the theories, right? Yes. It, it is. I'm just wondering why my... Mine just, because, yeah, mine just says, here. it just says Fury. It doesn't, it doesn't name yeah. which one it is. Mine too. Oh, okay. That's why I was confused. Okay. Mine name's that one. Okay. Um, and so she calls out to her dad... And then she, or the chorus calls out to, I don't know if she does, if it's Electra or the chorus calls out to their dad. And in that end of scene four, they name how he was murdered, that he was cut apart and he was buried without being lamented. And so then I looked at scene five as this is when brother and sister lament together and they retell what happened. They name it that the, at the bath is where her their dad was hacked to death and um, that there was a trap net invented and they talk through that um and they ask that either to send justice or give them strength um and they ask in line 503 that the seed of their bloodline not be wiped out um and the chorus oh Orestes asks the chorus why did my mom send libation bearers like, why did she pour that out? And the chorus tells him the story of her dream that she had given birth to a serpent who then she suckles and that serpent drinks of both her milk and her blood. Mm. And she woke up, you know, in utter terror. And so she sent the libation bearers to hopefully make that not happen, not matter. Um, and at the end there, I feel like the chorus sings a song about what are what's the difference between monsters and men? Um, is kind of how I would summarize that ending of that scene. And then um, we now have um, Orestes showing up at the house. So when does he tell his sister the plan? Does he tell her? He tells her the plan at the end of the lament before the chorus sings about the monsters and men. He tells the sister, uh, Electra, go back home, keep everything calm and in order. I'm going to show up with somebody and play, you know, Weave my own tail, basically. 
and see how I can get in um, with the total plan to kill. And so next scene, he shows up at the house, um, takes a little while before he's recognized or, you know, just acknowledged, not even not recognized as a person, just acknowledged. So eventually somebody comes to the door and then Clytemestra comes and he tells Clytemestra how he met somebody along on a journey who told him to come to this house and tell the parents of this house that Orestes is dead. And she says, oh, okay. Um, you know, basically have a seat. And he, she sends for Aegisthus. Um, he's shown to a room and she sends for Aegisthus. And so in the next scene, I don't, the, the nursemaid to Orestes when he was a child, Calissa, is that how you say it, Calissa? She's grieving and the chorus wants to know what's going on. And she tells the chorus that she has to go out and get Aegisthus um, and bring him back to the house with all of his guards. And the chorus tells her, no, 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 just have, um, just tell him he can come without any fear. Something like that. Come without any fear. And so um, he, the next, the next scene, he comes and... Um, Victory is for Aegisthus. Um, off scene, right? And then in the last scene, uh, Clytemnestra and her son go back and forth um, about, you know, arguing this. And I, I mean, it was beyond sad, right? That she physically bears her breast to try to win him over, you know, like create some kind of loyalty to her. And... Um, He's, he's, he's been sent by Apollo in a way, right? From the beginning to do this. He's been guided all along the way. Um, and he tells her, you bore me only to abandon me. And so his loyalty lies with his mom and she's dead. <laughs> what did I miss? Not much. I can see. Yeah. I, I will just say for our listeners, the, I looked it up, the Irenes, it's Irenes, I guess, is how you say that one, but it's it's the same word as, it's also humanities uh, and furies. Those are all the same thing. Thank you. So I think Irenes is a much is a more ancient term, and then it became humanities, which is the third play we'll read. And then right. in English, it's translated the furies for, in okay. English. So it okay. seems to be using interchangeable here. Yeah, and that line where I was referencing it, the course says, you know, the rule is... Now, when there's yeah. murder, the, it calls on the Furies. It calls on Uranus to come and and retribute it. Yeah, that's what's going to happen now. Yeah, this is. Uh, I mean, I think this is the saddest of the three plays. Easily. I just cried. Yeah, I didn't cry, but um, <laughs> it's come on, Brian. <laughs> you can tell them it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> I didn't cry. Okay, you're crying. <laughs> that's <laughs> it, it i mean from beginning to end it opens a lot like agamemnon did you know just a very gloomy sad uh-huh. scene um you know i, I kind of get the feeling it with both plays like if you were to and i have seen them at least uh recorded performances of this um they really do their best like everything is black everything is dark everything is gloomy it's you know but you kind of get the sense that there's just like fog everywhere you know mm. <laughs> um mm. it's yeah all, they can't it's see yeah it's all yeah. gloom um 
And, you know, to come back, this was actually uh, in this, the stage directions bear this out. This was a few years after Agamemnon was killed. But because Orestes is now coming back after all this time, again, it's very much an echo to Odysseus returning back home. You know, he's not uh-huh. recognized. He can take on a, a false identity and, you know, no one, no one notices it's him. No one recognizes that this is rightfully his house. Um, you know, to make it even worse, it's um, he, he arrives back on the, I guess on the edges of the outskirts of the city where um, the, the graveyard of the patriarchs and Kings is and finds uh, a grave that looks newer than the rest this is how he first finds out that something's not right you know yeah um he doesn't know the full story by then at all of course but um and you but you get a sense um uh, when he first when he first shows up um you get kind of a picture that orestes is is not his dad you know from the very beginning he shows up and um, you see things like when he sees the grave, he cuts two locks of hair off and lays them on the grave as a, as a sign that here lies part of me because this was someone in my family line. Mm-hmm. When he hears the mourners coming, he steps back to the side because he doesn't want to disrupt their mourning. Um, and mm-hmm. so he, he already in those early moments shows such consideration, uh, such consideration that you don't see an Agamemnon and even though Clytemnestra's circumstances certainly are different, it's not what we see in her in the first place either, you know, granted a lot of her anger and desire for revenge was, was earned over a lot of tragedy. Um, but Orestes just kind of strikes you as a different character. You see, does me much more sympathetic than anybody thus far. Yeah, there is a, there, there's so many echoes with, with the, with Odysseus, right? Because I'm glad you, I'm glad we went back and you pointed out that he, he would have been sent away pretty quickly after Agamemnon left in order in normal circumstances to protect him from being assassinated, right? He'd been sent to a family member's household somewhere else. So he's been gone a long time. And we're talking, if it's the 10 years of the war, plus however long it took Agamemnon to get back, plus another two years or so since his death, you know, we're at what, 13, 14 years, somewhere in there. And if he was sent away as a young man, he's really, like you said, unrecognizable, except in- interestingly to his sister, who yeah. like can see some signs, which reminds you of, you know, um, uh, the dog. Uh, <laughs> and the, 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 yeah. Argus, um, yeah. And um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. Her her signs, like she's the hair is similar to hers and the foot size is similar to hers and things like that are, are an interesting tale to uh tells but then the whole thing right he has this clever story the same way odysseus it 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 seems to be kind of calling some of the same virtues Uh, and maybe it's pointing to that right maybe if 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 for the greeks odysseus um was a was one picture of a virtuous man that homer gives us right what one type of one type of great man that Aeschylus is, is kind of calling on that tradition a little bit and and kind of not pointing toward Odysseus a little bit with his descriptions and his how he has him act. So 
Another similarity between the two is that both of them, their nursemaids are engaged. Mm. There's not yeah. a lot of characters in these. Right. Mm. But yeah. 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 I, I, I thought that was very interesting as well, that, um, you know, that it's the, the first one to really grieve upon hearing the, the tale. We know it's not true, but hearing the tale that Arrested is dead was his nurse mm-hmm. um, and there's that's another similarity um one one contrast it's kind of a both an an echo and a, a real difference is remember penelope had dreams too about mm-hmm. the return of odysseus um and um she even wove them on the tapestry right according to According to some of the, I forget where that exactly is reported, um, but you know the scenes of Odysseus overcoming his uh, overcoming his enemies um, that she's weaving into the tapestry. But um, but here, you know, there's this dream that Clytemnestra is having, and that reminds me. I mean, of her having these prophetic dreams reminds me of so many other stories. Right, you've got to enjoy a Caesar. Um, yeah, and is it uh, Lady Macbeth? Right, mm-hmm. and so these dreams become become really powerful, really, um, really important. But um, I don't want to jump too far ahead. But all of those things just kind of echo with so many other stories. Mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, Brian, in Greek plays in particular, or just Greek literature, if, how important the opening lines are. Um, but we often focus on them in, in many places. And I noticed for this, the opening line is Orestes. You know, he's on stage at his father's tomb with his buddy. And his first words are, I pray to Hermes of the underworld, right? I don't know exactly what your words are, but it's a different character when it opens with him praying. Yeah. And I, I, it's interesting that I agree with you. I think that's significant. Um, and to open in this trilogy of plays with this, you know, being uh, all connected to the house of Atreus for, for one of the main characters to open with a sincere prayer is also, is also very, um, very telling for how things are going to go from here because Orestes now, you know, uh, Cassandra, of course, is a sympathetic character in the first play as well. But here we have Orestes, who is, um, as you've already alluded to in kind of summarizing this, that um, he ends up in a genuine dilemma, right? You know, we use the word dilemma a lot to refer to just a difficult choice, but a genuine dilemma is where you have only two possibilities and both of them are disastrous, right? You don't want either one of them. And that's really where he is now um, because the law of Apollo is that he has to avenge the blood of his father. Mm-hmm. But then the law of the Puri says he can't kill his mom because that would be shedding the blood of a family member. So he can't do that either. Now, I guess this was clever enough. He's asked at the end of the first play, you know, by the chorus, you know, you, he's basically called a, a weakling, you know, why did you let, why did you have Clytemnestra do this? Why not do it yourself? Mm-hmm. And it's because I think, I guess this new, the curses of the gods work. Yeah. Right? 
and I don't want one. So mm-hmm. um, he he didn't shed his cousin's blood. He had quite a mess to do it. And of course, you know, it was the wife of Agamemnon, but not a blood relative. So here, you know, fast forward and Orestes is thrown right into that very dilemma. Right. He can't win. And I think you get that. I mean, with, with because he wrote this as a trilogy, I think uh, on purpose, right? As opposed to you know, maybe in comparison to some other ones that that were done over time, um, he's tying that together so so neatly. And going all the way back to the curses we talked about before we even started the last play, the the previous generations, uh, back and forth of cursing, um, it's tying it all into that as we, as we move forward. It's interesting. We talked last time about we 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 raised the we raised the suggestion of crossing the waters and breaking the curses, both with uh, Odysseus and with um, with uh, Cassandra. But in this one, there, you mentioned Lady Macbeth, which I thought of for a different reason in this play, mm-hmm. where it talks about trying to wash the blood off the hands, and the more water you put on, the more the more the blood cries out, which is like anti-baptism like i don't know how else to describe it right um and that reminded me so much of that you know couldn't couldn't she couldn't wash her hands like it's just it's not possible to do it yourself i guess to wash your the the blood off your hands um so you have those different passages through water which i think are really interesting you know does crossing poseidon's realm kind of break his curses and then does this this but this blood guilt isn't isn't washable with all the waters of the world yeah, I mean, and that's why she sends Electra and and the other mourners down to the grave, right, to offer libations, mm-hmm. drink offerings, interestingly enough, um, because she can't do it. There's no way that Clytemnestra could go to the grave of Agamemnon and offer drink offerings. her hands? Right. Okay. So her hands are dirty? Yeah. Hmm. So dirty hands can't offer the offerings. They can't offer the sacrifices. Yeah. Um, but she's trying to, and interestingly, she's not really, I wouldn't take that as necessarily confession on her part. She's just trying to get rid of the nightmares. Yeah. Right. Yeah. She's trying to get out from under the curse, right? Which in this case right now is, is haunting her dreams. Um, I really enjoyed there that what is after Arrestee states the plan for him and his sister, who, how, how it's going to go down. Then the choral song there at the end of scene five, mine says, the earth produces many fearsome beasts and terrors. The sea embraces seething shoals of dreadful monsters. The sudden flashes flaring through the earth and heavens inflict their dangers on both winged and walking creatures. And there's the damage dealt by furious blasts of tempests. But these are nothing set beside harm done by people by men through daring and the recklessness of women who partner ruin through their dangerous emotions. The female ruling power of illicit passion breaks the union that binds humans into households. Everyone should know the tale of Alethea, of how Alethea killed her son, Maliger, when she cruelly carried through her deadly plan, how she took the blood red timber, placed it on a new red new lit fire, burned the log that shared his lifespan ever since his first birth cry when he issued from her belly, matched in time with him exactly until his dying day. And then there's another story of Scylla and another story of the women of Lemnos. Um, 
And so we're, we're laying beside these stories of people turned monsters on one another. Yeah, that's very, that's very well said. Yeah. These curses, the, this anger, desire for revenge has made people into monsters. Mm-hmm. And I guess you could say that, the you know, Clytemnestra would say the same about Agamemnon, you know, being willing to sacrifice his own daughter. Mm-hmm. He became a monster. So where does it stop? Well, we have to get to the, the end of the trilogy to find out. But this is... <laughs> It's interesting that I, I heard a, um, and I don't want to jump ahead too much, but I remember hearing a talk years ago. It was at the first Thursday conference I ever went to. And it, um, someone was talking about the ancient foundations of American law. And this is one of the stories that was brought up was that this was a trilogy of plays that was alluded to by some of the founding fathers out of the desire not to ever create or allow for contradictory laws. Um, that they had to make sure that in writing law, that they weren't, that you wouldn't have to break one law in order to keep another yeah, or vice versa. Yeah. Oh. Um, and so um, I thought that that was, I thought that was very interesting because here, you know, the, the crux of the play is that now Orestes has returned and he has this duty to avenge his father. He also has the duty to not kill a, a family right. member, you know, a blood relative. And yeah. so um, wh- what do you do when you have Apollo telling you, you have to avenge the blood of your father, but then you have the Fury saying, and if you do, <laughs> then right. we will, you know, take vengeance on you for the death of your mother. Um, so this is really the, you go from um, someone who, we, we don't even have to go back to the full genealogy of the curse that's on this house, but if you go yeah. back to just Agamemnon's actions, you have someone who almost callously, flippantly sacrifices um, his own daughter. But um, Amnestra is outraged by this. You know, why is he not being held responsible here? Why is he not seen as guilty? So she very calculatingly, is that a word? Calculatingly. It works. I think it is yeah. now. I think it's a word now. She kills Agamemnon, but then finally you have someone who has to stop and think about the impact and the consequences of their actions and their, you know, the shedding of blood. And so this is like the first time in this whole family line that you seem to have anybody pushing the brakes going, whoa, what am I, what am I supposed to do here? Mm-hmm. Um, and the first person who's actually hesitating. Um, and it's not that, you know, Orestes is pulled in both directions. I mean, we see this, he sets off for the, for the palace and he's determined. He's made up his mind what he's going to do. And I don't think mm-hmm. he really minds killing, I guess this, he didn't seem to be right. bothered by that. Yeah. Um, and I think we maybe could understand more of his, you know, his um, willingness to go through with that because that was also the law, you know. Um, but what does he do about his mom? You know, that's where everything begins to get really, really difficult. Wow. Well, he even says, like, 
he knows the rules. Like he says, let me take her life and die for it. You know, and, and I'm in what, 430, I don't know, eight, nine, somewhere in there. Yeah, because Electra talks about how cruel the mother, their mother is. Yeah. And he says, oh, all unworthy of him that you tell me. Shall she not pay for this dishonor for all the immortals, for all my own hands can do? Let me but take her life and die for it. And then she goes on to talk, Electra goes on, the chorus goes on to talk about how much, you know, how, how horrific Agamemnon's death was, like all the terrible things they did to him, you know, kind of mutilating him yeah. and stuff. But he seems like he, he's, I'm willing to answer both. I mean, I'm willing to answer the law. I'm willing to, to, to obey Apollo and take the, take the responsibility for it. It seems to me that the course encourages that. Right, right. And, Am I the one reading it that way? Well, and to probably, I, I think the course does, is encouraging it. Uh, and to Brian's point, though, he's the only one who, who does that, right? The rest of them do the bad thing and then want to get away with it or want to excuse it, whether it's Agamemnon or Clytemnestra or, you know, um, or I, I guess this, uh, they all know they're doing wrong, but they're all justifying themselves. Whereas he says, nope, I have to obey Apollo's law, but then I have to accept the Fury's law as well, because he's not about, they're both above him, right? So he's, he has to, he has to do what he ought and accept the consequences for doing what he ought. Um, um and it's, really, it's interesting to me that that he's he's sort of the first character that is anywhere close to that, right? I'm I'm going to do what the law requires. I'm going to do the honorable thing. I'm fully aware of the consequences, and mm -hmm. and do it anyway because it's it's the right thing. Um, and he doesn't seem to be really pulled um, just by just by emotion either. I mean, he's granted he's heartbroken because he sees his sister mourning. He's heartbroken mm -hmm. over the loss of his father. But as much as Electra and, and the chorus try to kind of egg him on, he doesn't just he doesn't take lightly what right. the law of. A mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, before scene five, where like I think he's turned to it when they are still going back and forth, he says at the end at four sixty one. Fight meets fight, right confronts right. And Electra says, gods, carry through what is just. And the chorus responds, I tremble to hear your prayer. Too long has fate had to wait. May it respond to our prayers. O pain, bred in the house, and discordant notes of ruin's bloody strokes, lamentable woes impossible to bear, difficult to close. A house must find a way to redress its wound, not helped by outside hand, but by inbred feud. The gods below chant out the refrain of blood, right? So the answer has to come from within. The answer to the family curse has to come from within, not helped by an outside hand, but by inbred feud. Yeah, only someone in the house right. can, could undo the curse, yeah. Yeah. And of course, of course, the problem is that given the way that the laws contradict in this situation, he might undo the curse. And yet Orestes who's seen by others, both Electra and the chorus, um, then Orestes would be dead. You know, he's, he's the hope of the household. And yet if he actually undoes the curse, then 
he dies. So in that sense, if, if we if we take their words as being correct, that Orestes is the hope, mm-hmm. um, you know, what what happens then? You know, the hope of the household is dead because he undid the curse. Um, you know, so there's still this kind of uncertainty lingering over the house of Atreus. But it sounds like a sacrifice. Yeah. I haven't read the last play, so I don't know where we're headed. Um, Agamemnon loves halfway ever after. Right. Right. I know. <laughs> we're uh, way past that now. <laughs> Ag- Agamemnon uh, grumbles ever after in <laughs> anybody who comes, to, who comes to ask him questions. Mm. He does. I mean, and so... Yeah, I always ask students this, and it's always an annoying conversation because it's it's so difficult. You kind of run round and round, but the, that means probably means it's a good question, yeah. um, and it's it is the question of the play, so we have to ask it. What should Orestes do? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's face to face with his father's grave, his mourning sister, and then he's face to face with his own mom, his own mother, who killed his father. And took over, you know, allowed, I don't know, I don't know exactly what to call, I guess, this. I don't know if he was an enemy before this. I mean, obviously he is now, Yeah. Um, but he's, but she has allowed a usurper to the throne that would have been the throne of Orestes. So she's not only taken the kingdom from his father, she's taken it from him as well. So what should he do? Which law does he obey? Mm. So I think about, you know, if we're thinking about writing the wrong of the death of Agamemnon, not who did it, just writing that wrong. Um, it doesn't seem like Agamemnon is a life worth writing for. Um, does that make sense? The choices he made, not just in sacrificing his daughter, which to some extent, um, cultures of that time, they ate children. Like, you know what I mean? Like they sacrificed their children. Um Christ came and gave us a different message, even in the Old Testament, with um, Abraham and Isaac, uh, right? Like, there wasn't going to be a sacrifice of this child um, any longer. We don't have to sacrifice our children for to please the gods. Um, but in that regard, like, his character, so he, he was willing to sacrifice his child, and he didn't understand his authority and the way he interacted with Achilles and the priest who came offering sacrifices to have his daughter back. The way he handled that wasn't appropriate for leadership either. And so I say, well, is that a life worth avenging? And then what is just the place of, of the role of father, right? To avenge your father, even though your father may not um, have made honorable choices. <laughs> right to just what what is a, a life worth avenging yeah. but the complication comes in that Orestes doesn't really get to decide that mm. there's right. no there um, he has no authority to tell Apollo what what the law should be yeah. um, which also strikes us as really unfair given the whole, <laughs> whole story right that's why I toss it out there because I wanted to just complicate right. the issue. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, I it's interesting you get different um I think I think we often in broad strokes talk about tend to talk about piety 
with the Romans more than we do with the Greeks, right? Especially, you know, we read we read the Aeneid and there there's more formal structure in 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 Roman law than than we typically get with the Greeks. And so we have like there's a built-in hierarchy there. Um and uh you know when I was in college I actually studied Eastern stuff a little bit as part of my minor and it's uh it's a uh, it's actually similar Although we get, we do get it some with 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 Socrates, um, when he's when he confronts uh, I forget that which one's going to try his own father, um, mm-hmm. that one. and he he argues with him there that that's impious to, <laughs> to try your own father, um, but the east the Eastern philosophy feels the same way that your piety belongs to your family first, like you shouldn't turn in your family your father for breaking the law, um, your your loyalty. It goes to your goes to your own parents before the emperor even and so this is an interesting look into that what that looks like right it, in this case agamemnon's not his conscience is not clean right like he's not um he's not the good guy but but orestes responsibility seems to be to to avenge his blood regardless like that's that's the rule and that's that's the pious thing to do which is yeah, like you said, tough for us to swallow a little bit, I think, because we have this different view of what's right, right? And that maybe we're more right, but maybe not. You know, so I mean, some of that is shaped by by our faith um and and doing the right thing, but some of that's also very much shaped by our our legal structure, which would suggest that you should turn your father in. But that would mean that you have a higher fidelity to the federal government or the state government than to your family, which maybe we should maybe we should spend some time thinking about what the Romans and the and the Greeks and the and the ancient Chinese yeah. thought about that and, and see if I we're think, on the, on the right worth, side of history. Yeah, that's definitely worth thinking about. Um, and it's it's I guess part of it, too, depends on, you know, what did your father do exactly? You know, um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think. There are, and we don't have to go into specifics, of course, but there are certain things that you go, yeah, yeah, I would, I would turn him in for that, you know, right, um, right. But, um, but in this particular case, it, it, contrasting the Greeks and the Romans, for example, is that it, it seems that in the Greek system, or at least this particular situation, there's not really a means of appeal, right? There's not a higher court that that Orestes can feels like he can go to at this point to get any kind of justice. It's just sort of, you know, it, it strikes me and I know that I'm over oversimplifying this, but um, I would do this for the sake of my students. Cause I want them to understand what's happening here is that essentially you have Apollo saying no, this is what you have to do. And the Furies are saying, no, this is what you have to do. And then he obeys Apollo Um you know, again, we, we do need to get to that point, right? That he does, uh, he does kill Aegisthus and he kills his mom. He kills Clytemnestra. Um, and then it's almost as if, um, he goes to Apollo and it's like, okay, I, I avenged the death of my father, but now the Furies are after me. And Apollo goes, Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> you know, <laughs> hmm, I didn't think about that. You know? <laughs> Bad rap. Bad rap, man. So sorry. Yeah. Good luck, kid. Um, yeah. So, you know, there, there's really just, but this is fully consistent with what we know the Greek gods, right? Is that they don't, that's not their problem. You know, they, they've never really honored, honored man 
all that uh, all that well, uh, unless there's for some you know, ulterior motive. They don't seem to so, get together and decide these rules together either. Like they're like, yeah, whatever. I have my rules, and Zeus has his rules, and Poseidon has his rules. So they only play on their own land, right? Right. Like, and, whatever yeah, my territory is, whatever sense, I want control over, whatever I can put a yeah. rule on, I can put a rule on, and I don't take into right. consideration when I do that the wholeness of who you are. Right. Right. Yeah. And that's so, why you the have God. the gods at war with each other too. Yeah. Right. And oh. so, in that sense, I guess um, in creating contradictory laws and not really considering their effects on the people who are called to obey them, they are very similar to the federal government. Mm. Um, <laughs> like you have to fill out form twenty four B. What's what's the movie you know what I'm talking about? In triplicate, but but before you do that, you have to do twenty one A. Where do I get twenty one A? Well, you can't get that until you do twenty four B. Right. Mm. So. There's just a constant circle here, but this is obviously a very, very serious situation. And so it, it is interesting. I would have students that would go back and forth constantly, you know, I mean, taking one side versus the other. No, he shouldn't kill Clytemnestra. Yes, he should. He has to obey the law of Apollo. No, he should keep the law of the Furies. And and so it, it, even though, you know, at least in it, the talk that I heard, and I think it's very interesting that that. Um, that the founding fathers did take that into account, you know, not having contradictory laws. It really does go back more, I think, to what Brandon, what you mentioned earlier, is that it really, this is really a play that is not just about contradictory laws. It's it's about where our allegiances should mm-hmm. be, where our affections, you know, and what do you do when your affections are suddenly at war with one another? You know? Um, yeah. And I think it's easy for us to see it when it's not our our system, right? Like, uh, I think it's easy for us to go, well, yeah, of course, people should have ignored the Nazis' rules and Lenin's rules that they're even though they were the law, right? If it was telling you to kill someone because of you know whatever their faith or their nationality or whatever it is, and, and it's harder for us to see that for our for ourselves a lot of times, and so. It, I think it's an important part of what we're doing as educators is to be, well, first of all, be part, if you're in a country where the people are making the decision, are making the rules uh, collectively, then be a part of that and be a part of that thoughtfully. But, but to look beyond what the letter of the law is in any particular place in any particular time to really seek out what ought one do. Right. And, and, and on what foundation are you basing that ought? You know, uh, and I think we take it for granted a lot of times and, and plays like this are helpful to kind of think through that. And in this case, they're in this case, he's, he's got dueling gods, right? He's got, he's got things he is supposed to answer to. And, and that, you know, in at least in a polytheistic society, he's right to be beholden to both of them. Fortunately for us, we're not under that same kind of, that same kind of uh, dueling polytheism that, that he is, but but we we do have different people telling us what we should do, and, and we, then we have uh, what our faith tells us we, should, we ought to do. And so, you know, sussing that out is not as easy as it sounds sometimes. And there's people who are definitely trying to conflate the two for you. I mean, oh, absolutely, yeah. And this is this is really the the tricky part that you know at, near the end of of this play um 
again, as I mentioned in the the last last week's podcast, that the stage directions in this play are very significant, very important. But there's a one point where Pylades, the friend of Orestes, so Orestes has killed his mom. He's killed Clytemnestra. And Pylades gives Orestes a, a branch, an olive branch. So, you know, a sign of peace, like it's done. And you think you kind of get this hint, like, oh my goodness, there's actually peace in the house of Atreus. Um, and he puts on him the robes of Apollo and there's a wreath um, and there's the insignia um, that's given to um, the, um, those who pray to the Oracle of Delphi, which of course Apollo was, um, was the, the God behind, if you will. But, um, and so here's Orestes and it finally looks like there's this just moment of hope that maybe peace has descended on the house of Atreus that, you know, here we have someone who's a true follower of the gods and the law of the gods. And then he, you know, he looks down and he notices that the sword is still in his hand. Hmm. It's right after that, that the Furies show up. And he goes from being shrouded in peace, if you will, with the approval of Apollo to now um, he screams out, no, no, women look like gorgons shrouded in black, their heads wreathed, swarming serpents, and he has to flee. And then the play ends shortly after that. So now we go from this moment, and it's just just the moment of peace. Mm -hmm to Orestes literally running for his life. Um, and he, he uh, screams out, no dreams, these tor- no dreams, these torments, not to me. They're clear, real, the hounds of mother's hate. Hmm. And then the leader says, this is because there's blood still wet upon your hands. Hmm. And that's spreading this confusion in your mind. And Orestes calls on Apollo. And notice here that this is the kind of the really scary thing to me that maybe one, it's not the most tragic part, but it kind of feels like it is that he's gone. He's taken such pains, such heartbreak to obey the laws of Apollo, to obey the God. Right. And then now he calls on Apollo, but notice that the play ends with no answer. Mm -hmm. Well, um, The, right after he says, uh, it calls up to Apollo, there's a line from the chorus that says there's one way to make you clean in mind. What, how does that read for the two of you? Mine says there's one way to make you clean. Let Loxias touch you and set you free from these disturbances. Mine's close. There's only one way to be cleansed. Apollo's touch will free you from these torments. Okay. Touch. Okay. That's, that's very close. Yeah. Apollo's touch. Okay, I'm curious. I'm just curious what that's what's meant by that uh, touch. Like, is it is it? Um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I I think that he's being told that he's going to have to go to uh, Apollo's temple. Okay, okay, yeah. to seek um, seek refuge there, basically, kind of right. like we. Okay, yeah, like the way that a, a, the churches used to be, you know, the right, red right. door, uh, the doors of sanctuary. Like the Furies um, can't take him while he's in the temple kind of thing. Right, right. If he can get there. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Run fast. Okay. 
I, I thought it was interesting. I mean, obviously, you know, it's a Greek place, so the, the killing is done off scene, as we as we talked about last last week. Um, but I I found it interesting when the doors open and he and he's over their bodies. The um, the way it's kind of described, like it seems very much like he's he's trying to make a statement or at least make an argument for his for what he did, right? Like he has them piled together in a way that kind of shows their their infidelity or his mother's infidelity. Um, and then, then his, his attendants are displaying the, the kind of yeah. cursed, the cursed, yeah, garment net thing as proof of her guilt. Right. Um, so that to me was really interesting that he's, he knows from the get go, I've got to make my case, whether it's to the chorus and the people, well, they seem to be on his side anyway, but, but probably to the Furies event, uh, ultimately. Um, I, I think part of it might be that he was he was doing that for his own benefit as well because of just the horror of what he's actually mm. had to do. Um, yeah. So I think part of it is that he wanted to remind himself of why he, why he did it, why he made the decision that he did. Um, because, you know, again, it's not just, not just a dilemma of which law do I keep, you know, that's a very uh, sanitized way of looking at, everything that would have been going on in his mind. I mean, he's either way, he is, he is having to make a absolutely heartbreaking gut wrenching decision. And so I think part of it might be that he wanted to be reminded uh, for his own benefit. Yeah. He's making a show of, of their guilt for, for all the reasons maybe to convince himself a little bit of what he's done. And before he makes the decision, I agree with you, uh, both Brian and Brandon. Like, so before he makes the decision, he and Electra have to recount all the details mm. to to put it. Oh, okay, this is really what happened. They've got to under, they've got to look at reality, right? Before he goes and does it, and now he's done this thing. And one of the heartbreaking pieces for me was that when the slave says, um, "I say the dead are slaughtering the living." Right, when Clytemestra comes in and she says, what's going on here? What's this alarm about? Because Orestes has just slayed Aegisthus. Um, Clytemestra says, ah, I see the meaning of your riddle, right? She knows it's Orestes, who she thought was dead, is mm-hmm. slaying the living. Um, we're about to die by trickery, just as we were killed. Quick, someone fetch an axe that's good to kill a man. So now, all right, let me kill my son. Like that. Um, I think that's partly why I cried. Like the the, the torment within this home. Mm-hmm. And so he's like for her for him to do what he did, he had to recall in his mind the facts. He had to really look at reality. And I feel like she's not looking at reality if she can look at her son and just say, get me an axe that'll kill a man. I don't know. I I, I just I don't understand a mom's heart that can do that. Um, but it's kill or be killed. And so she's made a pretty quick determination yeah yeah and it's in keeping with what we what we talked about last time right with the whole curse on this household is that you know with the with bloodshed and the sword never not departing from the house it's as if and that's why i think it's important that we understand orestes pausing before Mm -hmm. you know shedding blood is that he's really the only one in the family who has, you know, Thank you. Thank everyone you, else has been very, 
very free to do so, including Clytemnestra. Yeah. Yeah. So as I sit right now with this conversation, knowing the, the rule he's under, I understand the choice he made. That he yeah. should have his father's death. Yeah, I think I do too. Although I don't believe his father to be an honorable man. I also agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Brandon? You're not getting out of this. Uh, no, yeah, I think um, I think any doubt of that is a race when he shows up with Cassandra and Toe. <laughs> um, if you're paying attention at all, but Agamemnon. But uh, yeah, I don't think we get a picture of Agamemnon being very honorable almost anywhere. So um, I, I can't imagine much of the Greek audience even would have felt any different than that. I think... I think these are tragedies for exactly that reason. I could say, you know, it's, um, well, you pointed out at the beginning, Brian, like he's in a, he's in a real dilemma. Right. And so that's, that's clear to his audience, to, to the original audience as well. Like, um, he's trying to be a good person dealing with a bunch of people's bad, bad people's bad decisions. Um, but, I don't think his father acts honorable. I don't think his uncle acts honorable. I don't think his mother acts honorable. Um, and he's left to pick up those pieces or try to try to do what's right. And that's that's an impossible choice in some ways. But well, one one thought that I've had too, and I'm not really sure, mm-hmm. I'm not really sure if it holds up. In my head, it makes sense, but I'm just going to throw it out here and see you know one one last observation here is that because Clytemnestra has killed Agamemnon and is now you know has essentially married another who's um, not completely outside of the family line but outside of the house of Atreus anyway so um, I guess this is you know outside of the house of Atreus that in that sense um, Orestes was was being more faithful to his household by killing Clytemnestra and avenging the, the blood of his father. So she has she has kind of in in a sense broken away from the household of Atreus by killing Agamemnon and now um, is oh. essentially married married to Aegisthus. Seating so another now, man on that throne. Right, Interesting. Right. So I think that Orestes is, is actually defending his household here by the decision that he makes more so than if he had refused to kill quite a mystery. That's interesting and brings up another question for me now. Because mm. we talked about curses last week and how long they go and how they get broken and that the 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 kingdom or the kingship of atreus is is what's cursed but like is there a technicality here where like it ended for two years because once once a guest who takes the throne with clamnestra it's no longer it's no longer the throne of atreus like it's for two years it's it's under his uncle's the king right um and so rather than being a continuation Orestes would now be a a restart. You know, and I don't know, like that's interesting that like it get it actually the curse 
does what it's supposed to, says it's going to do. Yeah. Um, and once that happens, does it is the line was the line broken essentially yeah. for two years? Well, I, I, that could be. I don't. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know how to answer it, but I think I think that could be part of it. Also, I think that this is, um, I believe, the first time that the sword, and that was you know, connected to that curse, right? I think this is the first time that the sword has actually been used to, in an attempt to bring peace to the house. Mm-hmm. Finally, you know, not out of revenge. Every other time, it's been revenge. It's been callousness. It's been disregard for mm. life, disregard for loyalty, disregard for the gods, you know, for any sense of honor. It's just bloodshed over and over again. And this is the right. first time that there's been an intentional use of the sword to for obey justice. the gods yeah. and, you know, and to bring peace. Um, and so if we talk about the, the end of the curse on the house of Atreus, to me, it, that makes sense um, that, um, and and the other part of this is that now, with Pygistus and Clytemnestra dead, you now have the the house of the cursor. The house of Thyestes is gone too, hmm. and so um, the one who spoke the curse is gone, and his household is ended. Hmm. And then the one who had the curse inflicted upon him, the house of Atreus, um, now that's been reversed by an act of finally using the sword for, for good and, and, you know, seeking justice and peace. That hmm. I guess there's have no siblings. Is that what you mean as well? Cause I'm thinking, well, but there's Agamemnon right. and Menelaus. Well, the, the two siblings are the ones his dad, his dad ate. Yeah. Oh, he, yeah. He talks about being, I can't remember now, I can't remember which play it's in. He talks about being an infant when that happened and swept away, like kind of skirted off. The last, the last of his father's sons, kind of thing, and raised as a he was raised as a commoner, basically, mm. uh, in hiding. Aestes. Yeah, I think that's what I read. I think I, if I read that right, yeah. um, that that's basically how he escaped. You know, right. destruction. So I, I don't, I don't know how yours ends it, but I feel like the the last lines by the chorus of this whole play hold it now this tempest is the third to rage and leave behind its wake of wreckage through the royal palace first there was that cruel banquet children swallowed by their father second was the royal commander's downfall bathtubs slaughtered thirdly now a kind of savior has arrived or should i call him more a death knell where shall all this reach an ending where be soothed to calm this cyclone of disaster it's a great ending, isn't it? I mean, or it's tragic, but it's um, it's so it's so well written, you know. Um, to know now that you know that they thought Orestes would be the savior of the kingdom, and now as this play ends, he's running for his life from the Furies. Mm-hmm. Well, and that that question of a savior or a death knell echoes throughout history right <laughs> for for us for sure those two things the, I mean, for them it's a contradiction right and for all of mankind it's a contradiction until it's not <laughs> anymore so 
every political successor is either a savior or a death knell, right? That's right. the way. <laughs> um, yeah. And in, in this case, of course, you know, it, it being in, in very serious um, circumstances and uncertainty. Um, can you imagine just living in Argus, though? This is this has been the line of your kings for as long as you can remember. I mean, yeah, it's been uh, rough going for a while. Yeah, I repeatedly don't want to live in times like this because of how women are treated. Yeah. I I like to have the misdeeds of my rulers just you know swept under the rug repeatedly. That's better, huh? Yeah, it makes a lumpy rug. <laughs> maybe the yeah. women will clean it out for you we can we can read about we can read about them like we can read about them like two or three generations later when someone writes the like you know the biography of so-and-so yeah oh that's that's too bad that that guy wasn't as great as we thought he was mm-hmm. oh well yeah mm. all right well now I, I'm excited I will say that i'm proud that we actually got through this whole play yeah yeah we got that it was oh, good i, I, I think proud is that the word for us? <laughs> I think, yeah, we, I think we covered it pretty well. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole lot of quotes and so forth in here that, um, you know, caught my eye. The the, the poetry yeah. of it is um, well done. It's, yeah. I, we, we can spend some time in the Q&A just like giving our, our favorite lines from the three plays and just like, okay. Love this, especially when, and probably my my guess is now having read two of them, that there'll be ones that are more poignant in the first play when you get to the end of the third play. You know, like I already feel like that way oh, yeah. after just reading the first two. So it's gonna be come back and go, oh man, what a setup this was in play one. You know, that which kind is of why thing. I thank Brian for bringing us back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good that we didn't we didn't miss that that part that Brian pulled up at the beginning. So, because yeah. uh, it's important. Well, that's that's one reason why I always loved teaching this. Um, is that it, it, it never gets old. Like it's, you mm. just keep going back through it because even in the end, like, even if all three of us agree, Orestes did the right thing. Yes. That's my vote. And you go back through it and you'll see something else and you go, yeah, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, yeah, but that's why it, it really stands, stands the test of time is that it's, there's there's no platitudes being offered here. There's no yeah, simple solutions yeah. to any of this. Um, yeah, it's it's some of the same reasons we love the epics, right? And the why the epics because there's there's so much to go back and rethink once you get to the end and rethink and reread. So yeah, well, cool. I, I think I've just sat in the camp of he should have killed his mother, right? That's the camp I sit in. Just yeah, where you are. You're on the record now, Andrea. You're on the record in favor of matricide. So. <laughs> I already and put it on Twitter. Being recorded. <laughs> Andrew you Lipinski, in favor of killing moms. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm not on Twitter. Wait. <laughs> Neither am I. I think you mean you're not like. I've heard about this. My son, who you both know, he was showing me something on his phone. He goes, just so you know, that's not something else because it's just a big x he's like it looks like it'd be really a really bad app like it'd be for like really naughty things on your phone <laughs> like it's x-rated and i was like i know i i'm i'm with it enough to know that twitter changed his name buddy okay i'm not i'm not that old um, you just assumed you had no idea what's yeah, going on yeah. that's right that's right no idea what's going on in the world 
Thanks, um, son. Yes. Yeah. He's a good kid. All right. Okay. Well, we have been going for a while, so yeah. we should probably end this one, wrap it up. But thank you guys. I do it's have one more fun. thing to say. All I'm right, a little sad it. even right now because you guys have said we're going to do this and this and this during the Q&A, and I will miss the Q&A. Oh, okay. You have to send me your favorite your favorite quotes for the q and I keep forgetting. You won't be here. I'll be off so. sailing. Oh, I feel really bad now. Yeah. I feel so, so bad for you. Um, it's because I'm turning old. That's how that's you, right. you mark oldness. You go sailing. Old man in the sea. All right, let's do this. All mm-hmm. right. I'm on a boat, but it's moving really slow. Really <laughs> slow. <laughs> it heading is a sailboat. Heading yeah. toward the sunset. All right. Well, thank you guys. This has been fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, looking forward to the next one. Uh, thank all of you for listening and pulling it down off the shelf and and reading along with us. Uh, like I said, we'll we'll jump back in next week with um, the uh, humanities, which we now know is the Furies or the Einzies. Um And we'll we'll get into it next week. So we'll see what happens with our with our hero, quote unquote, uh, and the Furies chasing him down to the temple. That's a good cliffhanger for a play that's been like. It's like thousands of years old. It's not bad. You can send questions or comments to podcast at the Cersei Institute.org and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network. 